0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. By now... We're all familiar with the story of how the Durham investigation was rekindled in 2019, resulting in the closing of the case nearly two and a half years later. We've heard locals share their memories and insight. We've heard why many members of law enforcement stand by Billy Wayne Davis' confession, believing the Dixie Mafia was responsible for the murders of Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby Durham. But we've also heard many tell us that they don't believe the case is actually solved. Not until we know for sure who it was that initiated the crime. And we've heard Stoney confess again that, yes, his father was a brutal killer guilty of unspeakable crimes. But he's also given us his reasons for believing that his father was not a part of the Durham family slayings. Stoney's biggest claim is that he feels Davis might actually not be responsible for the murders either, despite his confession. While it might sound ludicrous to say that a man would confess to taking part in a triple homicide if, in reality, he didn't, Stoney told us he believes Davis made a deal in exchange for his cooperation resulting in him being moved to a more comfortable, safer medical prison. In this episode, I'll strive to find out if there's really any validity to that or not. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Season 2 of In the Red Clay. In order to tell this story properly and see if there really is any merit to Stoney's claims, I needed to go back to where it all started, with former GBI agent Bob Ingram. He's the man who first set the ball in motion with his call to the Watauga County Sheriff. Ingram relayed information provided by Billy Burt's youngest son, Shane, who was at the time researching information on his father's crimes with the help of local, Georgia-based author, Phil Hudgens. While Hudgens was helping Shane and his mother, Ruby Nell Burt, research and compile notes, he reached out to Ingram.
1: Phil Hutchins called me and asked me would I be willing to submit to an interview with him uh, about a book on Billy and Sunday Burrett. Before the call ended, he had a very unusual request. He asked me if Shane Burr, the youngest son of Billy Burrett, could come with him to sit in on the interview. I, I did not know Shane Burr. I just knew he was the son of Billy Burr. I thought it was a very unusual request that I said this would be really, uh, really awkward. And I can't imagine the son of a killer wanting to sit down and hear me talk about his dad's multiple murders over a 10-year period that he had committed.
0: Shane and Phil Hudgens met with Ingram at his office in White County, Georgia, to discuss Billy Burt's crimes while Shane wanted to sit in on the interview with Ingram to discuss his father, he wasn't compelled to respond to my request for an interview. Nor was Phil Hudgens. The meeting concluded after two hours. And as the men said their goodbyes, Shane said something to Ingram that piqued his curiosity.
1: Uh, Shane said to me, he said, you know, uh, I've talked to my father some 30 years in, in prison on visitation. And he told me about a lot of crimes that he had committed in bits and pieces. Uh, In Shane saying that, I said to Shane, would you be willing to sit down with me at a later date and be interviewed?
0: Ingram tells me that the two men met several more times and discussed the bits and pieces of stories shared by Billy Burt to Shane through the years during prison visits. Though Stoney, who never missed a visit with his father, says that Shane was hardly ever there.
1: We'd gone through so many different cases. First of all, him starting out with what he remembered and could tell me, and then me questioning him about specific cases in Georgia.
0: Both Shane and Ingram were each hoping to get information from the other. Shane hoped to write a book. Ingram looked for any new information that could lead to the solving of one of the many unsolved murders thought to be perpetrated by the Dixie Mafia. It was during the third meeting between the men that the Durham case, by happenstance, came into focus.
1: On uh, May the 17th of 2019, I did a, a formal interview with Shade. This is when Shade brought up and discussed the murder of three people in a residence in the mountains of North Carolina. And he said the victims were the mother, the father, and a grown child. And he said that this occurred in the early 70s. He didn't have a specific date. And there was a heavy snowstorm uh, in which they almost got trapped as a result of it. The house sits way up on a steep rise hill, if you will. It would be very uh, treacherous with snow and ice.
0: The information provided by Shane does seem to fit the profile of the Durham murder case. But what proof is there other than Ingram's word that Shane Burt really received this information from his father? All of the information he allegedly provided could easily be found online. And the timing of all of this, interestingly enough, coincides with the book he was trying to write.
1: Uh, He also said that this crime was set up by either a nephew or a son-in-law. And he said that the man who was killed, one of the victims had a car dealership and he was set up to be robbed and they didn't get the amount of money that they had expected in the crime.
0: After hearing so much about the Durham's son-in-law, Troy Hall, and his potential involvement, this would prove to be explosive information. Though again, this information was available online if you searched for it. But initially, this didn't mean very much to Ingram. Because he wasn't looking for murders committed in Boone, North Carolina. He was looking elsewhere.
1: He used the, the word Durham thinking that it was Durham, North Carolina. Subsequent to that, after seeing Bull Durham on television, Shade called me and said, no, the family's name was Durham it didn't take long with that information in the internet to google triple unsolved homicide mountains of north carolina
0: durham this all feels a little convenient almost something straight out of a movie or a book
1: uh with with that information it came up uh, relatively quickly that there was an unsolved homicide. In Boone, North Carolina, three members of a family, they were bound, they were tortured, they were robbed, and killed.
0: For Ingram, there was one piece of information that stood out, something that harkened back to his days working the Fleming double homicide in Rennes, Georgia, in 1973.
1: When I pulled up the newspaper articles on the crime and the crime scene and the evidence and what I was able to accumulate, it almost was a template.
0: In both the Durham and Fleming cases, the victims were targeted for robberies and then strangled repeatedly, having to watch their loved ones be tortured as well. The victims' cars were taken and then left abandoned a few miles away, where the killers escaped into a getaway vehicle at a planned meeting point.
1: The important points were the similarities in the crimes number one, They were targeted. Both crimes were set up and targeted by somebody giving information that these people had money. They were both in the car business. Mr. Durham was uh, actively involved in a dealership in Boone, and Mr. Fleming was a retired Ford dealer, but he still dabbled in cars. They were bound very important. All the victims bowed. They were tortured in an effort to determine where all the body was located. They were killed, so there would be no witnesses. The phones were disabled in both.
0: But something Ingram says here is not accurate. The Durham's phone line was not disabled or cut, as many people believe. When police arrived at the scene, the handset was lying on the floor, as if it had been dropped or knocked off the receiver. But the phone still worked. Stoney tells me that the first thing his father would have done in a crime like this is cut the phone line, so there was no chance of anyone calling for help.
1: And very importantly to me is that both individuals had one automobile at the residence, which supported that multiple offenders, and prior to the crime, they had designated a drop-off and pickup point away from the scene, between one and two miles, both cases. They were put out at the location of the crime or in close proximity where they could walk to, commit the crime, take the victim's car, drive at a mile or two to a pre-designated location, dispose of it, get in their car, and then leave.
0: Ingram keeps pointing out the importance of the victim's car being taken. If there was any unusual vehicle in the driveway and someone happened to notice it while the crime was being commissioned, they would likely be able to identify it later and trace it back to the assailants. Experienced criminals like the Dixie Mafia knew to avoid this. But experienced criminals like the Dixie Mafia would have known to avoid many other missteps during the crime as well, such as allowing a phone call to be made by a victim after they had entered the house. Ingram then worked with the Watauga County Sheriff's Office to go to the only living source, Billy Wayne Davis, and solicit a confession. Ingram wasn't initially asked to partake in Davis's first interview with Watauga County.
1: They went and interviewed Davis and uh, struck out, got nothing.
0: So Ingram said he decided to interview Davis himself.
1: I'd actually prefer to do it alone and always have in my career because I don't want any distractions I went in and asked him nothing about the Durham case I went in and spent the first hour kind of giving him a history lesson on Billy Burr, Billy Davis the whole group and and different crimes that had been committed but But specifically, I honed in on the Fleming case. Knew it very well and rehearsed and prepared and laid the whole thing out and spent an hour doing that with him. And his exact response to me is, you've done your homework. Why are you here? And that was my opportunity, my lead in to the Durham case.
0: Ingram was in his early 70s at the time of his interview with Davis. I can just picture these two men sitting across a steel table from one another. One, a decorated member of law enforcement with nearly 50 years of experience under his belt. The other, an unabashed liar, thief, and killer. But why is it that Davis denied having any involvement in the Durham murders initially when interviewed by Watauga County sheriffs, only to seemingly cave in to Ingram after only one short meeting? Could it be that Davis was promised something? Ingram told me that each time Davis had been up for parole since he's been incarcerated, he's attended the hearings to make sure that Davis never gets out. Could he have used this as leverage to solicit a confession, perhaps promising to no longer attend these hearings? And after his interview with Ingram, Davis seemed very interested in whether or not he was going to be released from prison, according to Sheriff Hageman.
1: I went into some specifics of the case and asked him the most important question was, did you drive in both cases, the Fleming case and the Durham case? And he said, yes. And provided information about the case. Putting them out, them committing the crime, not getting the amount of money they expected.
0: Either way, Bob Ingram had his confession. Still, is it as cut and dry as that? Davis, I'm told, has dementia. Could that affect his willingness to confess? Or did he even fully understand what he was confessing to?
1: Uh, what I found out to be true, he was an 80-year-old man with a good memory. But uh, his level of dementia, if, if in fact he had any at all, uh, was minimal. And he told me he worked out every day in the gymnasium, so. I mean, you can, I guess, use that as a a measurement of his mental and physical fitness. Was he as sharp as a 30-year-old when I first dealt with him? Of course not. This is a man who uh, had good recollection. Was he able to provide specific, precise detail? No. But was he able to give a good general description of what occurred and who was involved? Yes. And he did.
0: I asked
3: Stoney to weigh in on this. You know, if somebody told me that Davis was either just asked to take a lie detector test, it'd be more reasonable for the general public to accept it. But no, he's not even asked. They probably don't want him to take one. The law enforcement involved in closing this case are not evil. They're not diabolical. They don't want to cause anybody any harm. Hell, they might even believe their own bullshit. But I don't believe they believe it. I believe that we're all human. I believe that Bob Ingram wants to continue to be the legend, the man who broke the back of Vixen Mafia. I believe that the evidence of that is his life. That newspaper article things he said at the interview when this was over, will you solve any more cases, Bob? Probably.
0: All that speaks volumes to me. The newspaper article Stoney's referring to is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which did a feature on Ingram when he retired from the GBI and called him the man that broke the back of the Dixie Mafia, seeming to give him credit for single-handedly bringing the group down. To Stoney, that's laughable.
3: it don't take a rocket scientist to see through this, show. They throw my father into it. Once again just for some notoriety, to be the man who broke the back of the Dixie Mafia. Predictable. From my standpoint,
0: predictable. If the murders were committed by Billy Burt and the Dixie Mafia, why did the crime scene appear as if it was committed by amateurs, or done unprofessionally, as Stoney says? Why would Burt not have just gone in the house, taken care of business, so to speak, and got out quickly, as he had done so many times before? It doesn't seem to make sense, but Ingram thinks there might be a reason for that.
1: Uh, he was heavily into RJS's.
0: An RJS is a black beauty, the speed pills Bert favored. As the 70s rolled on, Burt became more dependent on these pills.
1: You become extremely paranoid, extremely dangerous, this... And, and they experience the drug-induced psychosis it's a temporary mental illness as a result of what it does and this lack of sleep coupled with the you know the extreme high and then when you come down the extreme low yeah it's uh, it, it plays havoc with your brain i've dealt with quite a number of mass murderers in my career and as a result of that uh, he is without a doubt the meanest and most dangerous.
0: Billy Sunday Burt was certainly dangerous. And if you were on his bad side, I can see that you could absolutely consider him to be mean. But I've heard from many people, including former police officers, that they actually liked Billy Burt very much. That he was fun to be around. But is it possible that by 1972, Bert was using pills so heavily that he had begun to change? It's apparent the pills were his downfall in many ways, but Stoney was with his father nearly every single day and says he never saw him become estranged with or unusually mean to his family or those closest to him. And to the point that Ingram was making, that Bert had become so pill-induced that he became erratic and sloppy in his crimes by the early 70s, while he had become more paranoid as a side effect of the black beauties, he was still in many ways at the top of his game, still outsmarting ATF Special Agent Jim West and the myriad of other law enforcement agents tasked with bringing him and his group down. As well, during the time period of the Durham murders, Bert was being watched closely. After the robbery of a local jewelry store in Winder, Georgia on January 10, 1972, Otis Reedling, the youngest member of the Dixie Mafia, was arrested and appeared in court on February 14th a trial at which Burt was called to testify. 1972 was also the year that Burt was paid by Davis to kill Sheriff Earl D. Lee, but decided not to at the last minute as Lee was with his wife and children. This flash of morality makes me question if it's feasible that Burt would then torture, strangle, and drown an innocent 18-year-old Bobby Durham, a child himself. That just doesn't seem to fit. So, what about Stoney's theory of Davis making a deal with law enforcement?
1: He didn't make any deal with me. I I never uh, promised him uh, anything uh, whatsoever. It's it's not even within my purview. But I've I've never uh, promised him anything, and I'm, I'm not aware of anyone doing
0: that. The audio recordings of Ingram's interviews with Davis have not been released, and I'm told That will not change. And as for Davis wanting to be released from prison for his cooperation?
1: He doesn't need to be out. I mean, please. Uh, No, of course not. He may be old and feeble, but Bob Ingram can look into his eyes and tell it's, you know, he's fully capable of still pulling a trigger.
0: Aside from wanting to know if there was any chance that Davis had made a deal with law enforcement, the biggest question in this case that still has gone unanswered, officially, is who set up the robbery homicide. When I discussed this with Bob Ingram, the conversation once again immediately turns back to Troy Hall and the alleged phone call he received from Virginia Durham shortly before the murders occurred.
1: Troy Hall. That, that phone call that he described is nonsense. He said that there were some black people tied him up and whatever and something. That, yeah, right. I mean, you, you're going to have multiple offenders in a house and they're going to let one of the victims make a phone call. Sure you are. And then the son-in-law doesn't call police, he goes uh, himself. And and the whole story is preposterous. The more you dissect the story, the, the more you realize what he said and what have you. And then listen to this. He takes a neighbor and him and his wife. They drive to the location and they leave her in the car. She's in the car abandoned while they go up the hill to confront a group of Blacks in a house who have tied up the Durham family. It's just, every single part of it is not only unacceptable and unbelievable, but it's preposterous. It's bullshit, to use a technical term.
0: Hearing Ingram tear apart Troy's story is eye-opening. This take on it is coming from a man with half a century of law enforcement experience. He's practically an expert on criminal behavior. But by whatever means Troy Hall had to connect with Davis, Ingram believes that's exactly what happened.
1: Somebody said, well, how certain are you that it was Troy Hall? Well, about 98%, if that's a good number. Shane said his father told him it was either a nephew or a son-in-law. I mean... Come on! There's no way in God's green earth that Billy Burr and that group would know about a Durham family in Boone, North Carolina. No way, unless somebody said, "Hey, this group, this this family has money." Davis, in particular, had feelers out everywhere. He's the he's the real clever, conniving, scheming behind the scenes set up the deal. So he's got feelings out everywhere. Hey, anybody who knows, anyone who has a large sum of money, let me know and I'll pay you for it.
0: Troy Hall has been fingered as the instigator of the hit by every member of law enforcement I've spoken to. While that does seem probable, there has been no evidence that he had any contact with Davis or Billy Burt. Those are simply unfounded theories. In fact, there's been no evidence or proof that Davis or Burt had anything to do with this crime. There were no fingerprints of either man found at the scene. There's no DNA of theirs at the scene. There are no eyewitnesses positively identifying either man. For argument's sake, is it just as feasible at this point to say that Davis was provided with information as part of a deal as it is to say his confession was legitimate? And furthermore, Ingram said himself that Bert left no witnesses. If he felt he was shorted money in a robbery by Troy Hall, Troy himself would have been a witness. To my knowledge, and from everything I've learned from Stoney, his father wasn't one to let something like this slide. If Troy, or anyone else, had set this up and shorted Bert of cash, as Davis said, they were dead. Period. For months, I've been trying to get in touch with anyone from the Durham family. I wanted to know how they felt, how that this case, this ever-present black cloud hovering over them for decades, is now closed. Did it provide the closure that everyone hoped it would?
2: Uncle Bryce, uh, Virginia and Bobby Joe, uh, we had a really close family, and uh Uncle Bryce would come see us and the family often.
0: That's Juliet Malden. She is the niece of Bryce Durham and the only family member that agreed to speak to me for this podcast.
2: And I have to tell you, I, I, I labored on this a while because this all I've ever known is, you know, the murders and... Both my parents have passed away, but and of course, Grandma and Grandpa, but like even on their deathbed, they all wanted it resolved. They all wanted it, you know, because Mama would say Bryce was the best of us. He was the best of all of us.
0: Though Juliet was young at the time of their deaths, her family has kept the memory of Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby alive all these years through sharing fond memories at family get-togethers and visiting their graves regularly.
2: And I live on the farm uh, where my Uncle Bryce was raised, and my brother lives in the house that uh, my grandma and grandpa built and where Uncle Bryce grew up. Our grandkids, um, I have five. My oldest granddaughter is helping me put the flowers on their graves now. You know, and my children helped me, and, you know, we've been working on their Christmas flowers. I think that, you know, just keeping their memory alive and sharing the things that, you know, have been shared with me helped me as a part of the closure, too. They were here, and they did good, but they were unfortunately taken.
0: Juliet tells me that the family has never really gotten over the deaths of the Durhams. In particular, her brother Jeff who was 10 years old at the time of the murders. He was supposed to stay over with Bobby that night, but the family decided it wasn't a good idea once the snow began to fall heavily. That blizzard likely saved Jeff's life.
2: It rocked, it's still like a living thing. And that's a a terrible analogy, but it is. The murder is like You know, it was like a living creature, constant. My whole entire life was the murder, the murder, every chance, every weekend. uh, That's anytime anybody got together.
0: Through speaking with Juliet, I've learned that Bryce enjoyed farming and gardening and that Bobby was an Eagle Scout, played football and had a passion for music. And for the first time, I'm really able to see the Durham's as a family as people, not just victims of a horrible crime, and that the family and friends they left behind still feel a void. Even the closing of the case hasn't given them the closure they had hoped for.
2: I just kept waiting to feel a sense of release, or, you know, just that closure, and it was like I've lived with this so long that I don't think, you know, I think that it's just something that you're, it's almost like a a habit. You just, you still feel that. You can't really let it go. You know, that this, they're still gone. You know, I'm thankful for everyone who put in time and, and effort for, you know, Bryce and Virginia and Bobby Joe. But for me, I'm still waiting for that, you know, that sigh of relief when you can say, okay, you know, after, seen my mom spend years and years and years of her life dedicated to getting it solved getting it closed and grandma and grandpa I think that it's almost like you know I did I didn't deserve to see that they just you know they earned it they deserve to see that closed and for me I think it's just going to be more time to you know accept that The roller coaster, you know, this ride is over.
0: But as with any pitfall in life, you slowly climb out and carry on, choosing to remember the good in those you've lost. And in that sense, they're never truly gone.
2: On the farm here, Sean, there are chestnut trees that Uncle Bryce planted. Jeff showed me one yesterday when we were down at the barn, and he said, you see that tree right there? You know, Bryce planted that. And, you know, he's still with us in a sense. He's still very much a part of
0: our lives. The chestnut trees on the Durham family farm still keep their spirits alive. As stories of Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby are told... Beneath their branches. It reminds me of the apple tree that Billy Burt planted over the grave of his beloved horse, Miller B. Twist, where Stoney passed down stories of his father to his grandchildren. I guess we all keep the ones we love with us in different ways. The question of whether or not Billy Burt and the Dixie Mafia were involved is fascinating. Even today, the Durham murders were committed in a way not necessarily consistent with most of their previous hits. The killers took their time, ransacked the house, torturing and strangling their victims before drowning them and arranging the bodies in an almost theatrical way. If robbery was the motive, why was cash left behind? Why was silverware taken only to be left in the getaway car? It doesn't make sense, and it truly does feel unprofessional in nature. But Billy Wayne Davis did confess. He knew of nearby landmarks, like the church, and told of waiting for the others in the parking lot of a market where a car was seen by an eyewitness. How would he know that if he wasn't there, unless he was instructed to say so as part of a deal, which he has done before? And honestly, in the South, there are churches on nearly every other corner. You could say that anything is near a church, and it truthfully would be. He described Billy Burt being angered at the nephew or son-in-law, as he expected more cash from the robbery. And Davis also told that Burt was planning to go back and kill that man. But again, knowing what we know of Billy Burt, would he have just let this one slide? That's doubtful. The Durham case bears striking similarities to the Fleming case, which occurred nearly two years later. But the Fleming case is one that Burt famously denied involvement in, instead insisting that it was Davis and Bobby Jean Gaddis who had committed those murders. It's the only crime he's ever outright denied, to my knowledge, despite having openly admitted to so much. There is something to say for that. For a man who did not hide from the sins he had committed Why deny that one? Unfortunately, he's not here to defend himself against these new claims against him. It's only Billy Wayne Davis and his word. The word of a pathological liar, thief, and killer. Either way, signs continue to point to Troy Hall as the man who initiated the hit. Whether he planned for the Durhams to be killed or not, we'll never know but the fact that he benefited financially from this murder and potentially others says a lot. That he was so distraught over the $1 will of Bryce Durham's speaks volumes. And Stoney. Stoney will continue to believe his father is innocent of this crime, no matter what. And maybe he's right. He and his father shared a bond an open relationship that exposed Stoney to knowledge of the inner workings of Billy Sunday Burt, his Dixie Mafia, and crimes they had committed that no one else was privy to. Billy Burt was certainly more than capable of this crime, but being capable and being guilty are two different things. Why would this be the one murder he decided to never mention to Stoney, but instead tell his youngest son about on one of his few prison visits? And I wonder, how many times will Stoney put himself out there defending his father?
3: My sole motive in even talking about this case, knowing that it's going to be out there for that family, Bryce's family, the Hall family, everybody to dissect every word I say. And they might see it as me sticking my nose into it. But my sole motive is because my father has no one... To defend him except me.
0: The answer clearly is as many times as it takes, and it takes guts to do that, to stand up for what he believes in, regardless of what anyone else thinks, that still, after all is said and done, he believes in his father. The legend and lore of the Dixie Mafia only grows deeper and more curious the more we dig. And though the Dixie Mafia as we know it is long gone, that collection of thieves and killers, whiskey men and gangsters, one thing still lives on, their stories. And while on different sides of this history, one family sits beneath an apple tree Another, beneath the branches of a chestnut tree. Both, keeping their loved ones alive through those same stories. And me? Well, I'm gonna keep telling them too. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kupe, and I wrote and recorded the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound design by Shane Freeman. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Season 2 of In the Red Clay, Durham, is a six-episode series with new episodes available every Monday. To keep up with this and my other podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kype. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the series, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.